But the subject is happiness. It is happiness, and we all want to be happy. Uh, there was a recent survey done, and the survey said 42% of Americans are very happy. 46% are not very happy. And if you survey people at work, <laughs> before the COVID, less than 10% of the workers were happy at work. I don't know what it is now because the workforce is crazy and we can't get people to work. So that survey was done internationally and on a, in a national, national basis, Denmark, Ireland, Sweden, and Iceland were the happiest countries in the world. The U.S. did not make the top 10. And um, so the good news is Jesus talked about happiness. In its deepest sense, we're going to talk about it today. You know, Pharrell Williams, that 2013 song, and I don't know how you could listen to that and not dance. Um, he said, happiness is what you want truth to be. And I'm here to say that while that might have some surface fun, and my, my favorites there were the, were the girl with the dog, because I like dogs more than people most days, <laughs> and, and then the children who danced, and then magic got on there. You saw magic at the end. But, you know, happiness is something we all want. I taught my girls um, that I raised that in order to be happily married, you had to do two things. You had to know how to cook, and you had to love football. <laughs> and for those of us that are between football seasons now, it's kind of a painful time. One of my girls recently sent me a note and said, Dad, they finally figured out how to ensure that the professional football team never has a home field advantage where the Super Bowl is at their stadium. And I said, how? And she said, they're going to have it at Texas Stadium. And as somebody who's a Cowboy fan, that was really cruel. <laughs> but we all want to be happy. And uh, for that reason, the Williams video gets us into that subject. And we are there in the book of Matthew. Matthew is an interesting gospel book. Here's a test for you. Is Matthew in the New Testament? How many ra raise your hand and say it's in the New Testament? You're all wrong. How many say it's in the Old Testament? Raise your hand. That's the right answer. We're not into the New Testament yet. And you say, John, that was a trick question because it's in my half of the Bible that's in the New Testament. But it's still Old Testament. It is still, as John said, the Holy Spirit is with you, not in you. Steve is teaching to the book of, Math, uh, book of Acts where that transition has been made from the presence of the Holy Spirit with believers to the indwelling reality of the Holy Spirit in the believers from Pentecost on. And, and you can see the transformations that's happening there. But in Matthew, though we are going to go through the work of understanding this book in the footsteps of Jesus, through the eyes of Jesus, we're going to do it in a way that understands that we're still introducing Jesus to the world. Matthew was maybe one of the most quiet of the disciples. He rarely appears. In his own text, 
he reminds us that he was one who, when he was called upon to follow Jesus, immediately said, and I'm reading in chap from chapter 8, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. So one thing we know was Matthew had an immediate obedience to following Jesus. Now Jesus said to his disciples before the Sermon on the Mount, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That had to sound kind of weird to the disciples. I mean, they understand what it meant to be fishers. They were fishermen, many of them. But what does it mean to be a fisher of men? The text says about Matthew, when Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, and this is an important overlay for the gospel, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, it's not for the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We learned in the book of James that 70% of the first century church were slaves. They were the bottom dwellers of that society. They were the ones who made little claim to status and significance. In fact, James tells us in chapter 1, this is pure and undefiled religion to visit the widows and orphans in their distress. What do you get out of that? Nothing. The widows didn't have anything to offer you. There was no social services agency in the first century. It was either the community or the church that took care of the widows. And the orphans had nothing to offer. And James said, having been taught by Jesus, that's pure religion. So we're going to focus not on the winners in the book of Matthew. We're going to focus on the losers. Because that's who Jesus went to. And in truth, we all are losers, having been not only made in the image of God, but from the Garden of Eden on, fallen and in need of redemption. So Matthew, in this book, gives us some unique perspectives into the path of Jesus. It's only in the book of Matthew where Jesus came to John the Baptist, and John said, whoa, I can't baptize you. I'm in need of being baptized by you. And Jesus said, no, you need to baptize me. It's only in Matthew that we get all eight of the Beatitudes. We get four of them in another gospel. But we get the fullest picture here of what it means, and brace yourself for this, for God to step out of heaven, to consider his holy and righteous place in heaven, not a thing to be grasped, but in his, son, in his son, according to Philippians 2, made himself nothing. So without trying to be overdramatic, I'm convinced as I prepared for this week that we're going to be on holy ground today. We're going to be on ground that talks about the world as God sees it through Jesus. And if we've done our job at the end of the day, maybe we'll have a greater appreciation of that. Every time we start a book, we start with passages that introduce us as to why this book is in your Bible. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. 
says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and and yeah, so that the servant of God may be thorough and complete. So that is something that we understand that all the books of our Bible are co-authored. They are co-authored. Second Peter chapter 1 says that you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the, by the prophet's own interpretation, but came about through humans who spoke by God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So every book in our Bible is dual authored. It's authored by a man except for maybe one that was a woman, it's my own theory, and, um, and the Holy Spirit. So hold up your Bibles, let's see them. We do that every time. I know, you're holding up your phone. I'm still going to encourage you to get a study Bible. Um, I, uh, I told you that I'm educated beyond my intelligence with seven years of seminary, four of Greek and two of Hebrew, and I learn regularly from the notes in my New International Study Bible. For example, for today, my note says, Jesus and Matthew gave the Sermon on the Mount as a standard for all Christians to realize its demands, that God's demands cannot be met in our own power. It's a good introduction. So get a study Bible. Humor me so I don't have to keep harassing you about it. So... That passage, those two passages teach us that Scripture is God-authored by human hands. The third passage that we come to introduces us to the passage that we're going to study today. And it says there that Jesus went through the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. So there was a growing enthusiasm for Jesus, and as he went through Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, this became his first ministry. Home base for Jesus became Capernaum. And this is what we call his Galilean ministry, and that'll go through chapter 15. And in that, no, you, that's later on, guys. Scratch that, that one. That Matthew 5. Uh, can't see that one. Let's move on. We're still working out the screen process. The guys back there are helping me out. Um, as we go through this passage, there was a groundswell of enthusiasm for following Jesus. And the challenge today is going to understand how Jesus' message met the needs of those who were following him. So he went, at one point, up, as the scripture says, to a mount. It was probably a mountain that's about eight miles south of the Dead Sea. And he went up and said there what we have come, become, come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. So chapter 5, verse 1, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down, and his disciples came to him. Now, I've given you a lucky number program that you should have today that has the eight Beatitudes on it, 
And I want you to look at them together because that's one way to understand this. The Beatitudes become the way in which Jesus said, this is how you to understand what it means to follow me. And each of those eight Beatitudes begin with the phrase, blessed are. So, well, John, how did you get to happiness? That's what blessed means. Blessed means happiness. It means satisfaction. It means joy. So you can imagine that now as he's called the disciples and they've gone up on the mountainside with him, he's going to say to these men, this is how you're happy. That's an enthusiastic subject. I'm sure they wanted to hear it. But understand where they're coming from. They're coming as a Jewish people captured, living under Roman occupation in their land, and being taught by religious leaders who we're going to find out are phonies. They're charlatans. They've twisted the Old Testament to serve their own purposes. And so they've come to follow Jesus, and they're excited to hear about the subject of happiness, and then Jesus begins to speak. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another gospel says, blessed are the poor. Matthew adds the words in spirit. What does that mean? That means one who's in poverty. Well, it wasn't exactly what the disciples wanted to hear. They kind of picked up on John the Baptist's messages of kicking people and taking names in terms of the Jews taking their land back. And Jesus said, it's the poor in spirit that are in the kingdom of heaven. Had to be something that piqued their curiosity, but they continued on. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The word mourn in the Greek means to be grieving at the deepest level. Well, this isn't exactly a winning message we're hearing here. Corporations, when they want to get a focus for their company, say, let's get a mission statement. I've participated in a few of those. I personally think they're kind of silly, but a lot of corporations get into that, and they get a mission statement that says, this is the direction we're going as a company, as a business. And if this is God's mission statement, and it is in Matthew 5, we're not starting out in very winning terms. We're talking about the poor in spirit. Now we're talking about those who grieve deeply. And the promise is they'll be comforted. I didn't even know I needed to be comforted, Lord, other than the fact that it's not going well in our land. Jesus continued to speak. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Well, now we're pushing the edges a little bit. Meekness doesn't just mean timidity. It means one who has looked at life around them and chosen to be abused rather than being the one who is abused. I say that carefully because there are limits to that in different circles that we're in. But the meek are the ones who, who aren't taking life with a hammer or a sword but they're ones who believe that the path to God is taking a tender gentle quiet 
approach. Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, what does that mean? It certainly means that if we're dealing with spiritual dimensions that have to do with internal mourning, with a meekness toward those around us, it means that the target for me is righteousness. It's right living. It's living in a way that craves pleasing God. And so Jesus said, hunger and thirst for that. One of the members of our congregation whom I love and who is the chief of fashion police here and my shoes do match today, tells me that at night, the last thing he says before he goes to sleep is thanking the Lord for the day. I love that. And I started trying to remember to do it. I do mine in the morning. But that's a wonderful thing. That's from the time you wake to the time you go to sleep, your craving is to please God, is to be righteous. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I don't know about you, but I have a favorite beatitude, and it's this one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know why it's my favorite? Because I've messed up so often in life. I've made major and minor sinful decisions in my life. And I've realized in that that I need mercy. And if I need mercy, I better be willing to give it out. That's what this beatitude says. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I love the passage about the Samaritan woman who had the demon-possessed daughter. Remember that in Matthew 15? And Jesus was teaching about how the gospel was going from the Jew to the Gentile. And the Samaritan woman came and said, Lord, my daughter, my daughter is demon-possessed. Will you help her? And interestingly, in Matthew 15, Jesus says not a word. That's what the text says. He didn't say a word. So the disciples stepped in and said, this woman's driving us crazy. Can we get rid of her? What do we need to do? So Jesus turned to the woman, remember the story, and said, the bread is on the table. It's for those, point being, for Israel. And that dear woman said, there are crumbs that come off of that bread, and they go to the floor, and the dogs get them. And Jesus said, great is this woman's faith. We don't come to God demanding that we deserve something. We come on our knees saying, I'm in need of great mercy, of great forgiveness. And in that, I am thrilled that God has drawn me into his presence, into his kingdom. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What does that mean? That means integrity. That means the decisions and thoughts that you have in private when nobody's around are ones that stand the scrutiny of God. That means that when there's not the double check by a monitor or an agency that says what you're doing is right, then you're still doing what's right. That's pure in heart, and the promise is they'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. 
Not a popular subject in our society, peacemaking. Quite the opposite. I was, heard, I was told recently that the little controversy going on with Twitter right now is that, and, and I don't have Twitter, I don't have any, I don't have any of that stuff, and I'm happy I'm busy enough without it, but they said Twitter is a fight that goes on without fists. And I thought, that's pretty good. That's people who want to argue and fuss and dispute and do all kinds of things, uh, and they can do it from the security of their computer online. It's not commendable in Jesus' mind. Blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who seek a way to make peace when they have every opportunity and maybe even the power to do the opposite. They stand down. They stand back because they're sons of God. And finally, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, if the disciples semi-understood what Jesus was talking about here, he began to lose them. Now, they didn't join this team to be persecuted. Why do we know that? We know that. Because Peter, bless his heart, when asked by Jesus later on, Peter, who do people say I am? He said, you're the son of the living God. But you don't get more than six chapters further in Matthew before Peter takes out his sword and cuts off a guard's ear. Because that's what he thought he was supposed to do. You don't get any farther than the Passion Week before, G, before Peter, when asked in front of the Sanhedrin crowd, do you know this man? He denied him three times. Exactly what Jesus predicted. And if, and if you have the spiritual stomach to watch Gibson's movie, The Passion, I haven't gotten through the whole thing. But there is a clip in there, and I'm going to use various video clips in future passages in this Matthew. There's a clip in there where Peter denies Jesus, and I think very effectively Jesus and Peter meet their gaze. And in that, these men in the Sermon on the Mount didn't understand what it meant to be blessed by being persecuted because of righteousness, and in that is the kingdom of God. Where does that leave us? If we're understanding this passage, we should be able to apply it in a way in the world that we live in. USA Today recently had a cover feature for a man that they claim to be woman of the year. I recently was at trial last week and um, during a break, I went looking for the men's bathroom, and I couldn't find it. So suddenly somebody pointed me to this sign, and it says, and I'll delete the name of the county, blank county respects the right of individuals to use a restroom in accordance with their gender identity. I wasn't sure what I was going to find in that bathroom. A British professor was asked by his student to begin to refer to him by his multiple pronouns, and that British professor said, I don't think so. 
and he was fired. And when that went before a British court, the British court said, well, we know that the Bible says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But that doesn't work today. So where is the world that we live in where we apply these beatitudes? I've had transgender clients that I've represented, and their legal needs are pretty straightforward, but I don't understand it when the most recent one said, I'm a man transitioning to a woman. I, I don't know what that means. And, um, you know, from a philosophic standpoint, if truth is relative, there's no absolute truth, then how, in fact, does a man know that he is a man and wants to be a woman? I, I haven't asked him that question yet, but I'm hoping that in my non-legal relationship with him that I'll get to a point where he says to me, there's something different about you, and what we want is for it to happen, and this is one of the best evangelistic verses in the New Testament, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to the, give a reason for the hope that is in you. That's wonderful. You live a life mirrored by these beatitudes that cause people to say, what I'm doing in life doesn't work. Tell me what's going on with you. <laughs> I was at Starbucks just before I came over here. And they had a table that says <laughs> to the children, where's your favorite Disney movie? And they had stickers for different Disney movies. And I thought to myself, well, there's a corporation that's gone south. <laughs> I mean, we are in a world that is insane. And it's going at an exponential pace toward things that are contrary to God. And we can march around on the corner with signs, and I guess for some Christians they want to do that, and that's up to them. That's not me. Or we can live a life in a way that says, let's look at this world the way God does, as broken, as needy, as people who need hope. They need a confidence that their time on this planet is temporary, but they can have a surety eternity with God in heaven. There are three kinds of applications, and we'll close up this beatitude message today. The first is, I think we have to take insights into what our culture is doing around us. We have to be wise in terms of understanding the pressures that people are under to redefine things, to flip the price tags over what they should be. It is certainly true that blessedness is the promise of the Beatitudes. And what that means, I think, is that for the joy that you and I are to have as Christians, we have to look at life as Jesus defines it. What does that mean? That means poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are peacemakers. I would submit to you that when your travels through this life, you begin to look at people that way, 
that your joy in the Lord and your opportunities for speaking to others about that will increase. At Starbucks this morning, I ended up talking to a couple of staff people about Jesus because they want to know why I wanted a sticker on my coffee cup. And I said, I don't. I'm going to use this as a sermon in my, a message in my, illustration in my sermon. And one thing led to the next. And who knows where that will go. But the point is that the Beatitudes are designed to make us happy in the deepest sense. Second, all of us have messed up. You know, as Christians, the world out there is pretty well defined as it's a hostile to Jesus. And when we, when we come into here, we say, okay, I, I, I'm among my people, and you are among your people, but it's people that still need to be real. We mess up every day. I sin every day. And as we go through Matthew and you find out that anger is equivalent to murder and looking at a woman with lust is equivalent to adultery, you won't be far behind me. And if we pretend that our act is together and we don't need the continuing grace and mercy of God, we're fooling ourselves and everybody else. So as we go through this book and as we overlay, and I'm going to suggest to you that the Beatitudes are overlaid over the whole of the book of Matthew, that as we overlay that, we're going to be people who are genuine and who are humble. There was a man who owned a vineyard, Matthew 21. He had two sons. Remember that? He said to son number one, go work in the vineyard. Son said, take a hike. And then he changed his mind. And he went back and he worked in the vineyard. The man, the man said to son number two, go work in the vineyard. And that son said, okay, dad, I'll do that. And he never did. And so Jesus, and there will be a whole section of parables in this book which teach us, in this parable, Jesus said, which of the two did his father want? The disciples said the first. And Jesus said, right, and listen to this description of the church. I tell you the truth, the tax collector, the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw them, you did not repent. And that was a message for Israel for sure, but it was also a message for the individual. And it basically said, if you want to be a person who says, all right, I've messed up. I haven't done it all right, but I want to turn. I want to follow Jesus anew. God is right there with you. He wants you to be enjoying the righteousness and satisfaction and joy that comes in the kingdom. If you want to say, what do you mean I messed up? It's not my fault. It's somebody else's. You'll never get on that train of repentance the way the book of Matthew describes it. God has given all of us, and I'm finished, God has given all of us four things. Remember what they were? Time. He's given all of us time. You're here today. He's given all of us possessions, something. 
some more, some less, but possessions. He's given us all money. We all have money. We have some money, some more, some less, but we have money. And we all have relationships. And that's going to be the measure of how we live our life. How do we take the grace of God and the joys that come in following him and apply it within the stewardship and services that God has allowed us to enjoy? You and I can, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I've never done this in a message in all my preaching years. I'm going to ask you to join me in that commitment as we go through Matthew. It's not going to be easy. It'll be so uncomfortable that at times you're going to say, that applies to me and I've got to own it. But I'm going to ask you to join me in Matthew as we go through that. I'm in. And if you join me, then we'll come out the other end with the joy and righteousness that comes in following him who is our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we believe your word, which says to us that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We would ask that you would give us the courage and the faith and the integrity to look at what you're asking us to do and as Matthew said to follow him who is our savior in Jesus name amen